Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Healthy Perspectives podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's journey, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. You know, a lot of my podcasts, you if you've listened to many of them, uh, you'll discover that I talk about points of tension. Because when I'm looking at therapeutic content in culture um, and society and psychology, those points of tension, those uh, tough spots are, are really where I want to focus the energy because um, we could focus on the easy stuff, but it's easy. If we focus on the tension, we can grow, right? Because life begins at the end of our comfort zone. I believe Walsh said that. So today is no different. I'm going to talk about the tension between life and autonomy. Uh, this is not, I want to repeat, this is not about abortion. I've, I've talked about that in the past in some cases, but it applies to it in some ways. And so I, I just want to clarify, uh, you know, if that's what you're um, you know, if that's what your takeaway is, then I would ask that you listen again and again until you understand that that's not the point of this. It is a very small snippet of this discussion. I want to start with this. What does life mean? And I say that because I want to take a, a clinical look at what it means, not not a, a personal look or a, a, a you know, your view or their view or opinions. I want to take a clinical look. I'm going to highlight two different things for you. One is transactional analysis. So life is an entire duration from beginning to end. Sometimes that's you know a year. Sometimes that's five years or 20 years or, or, or 40 years. I mean, it could be as much as 120 years. But a life is the full spectrum from birth, adolescence, or conception, depending on viewpoints and science. There's different perceptions on that. But essentially, it's from creation to separation from creation. So whatever that means in your world. And transactional analysis says that throughout that entire lifespan, there is uh, an ongoing child within us, an adolescent, a critical parent, and a balanced adult. And the thing is, it's an ongoing process throughout our entire life. Now, why do I say that? I say that because a clinical look at what life is means we have to accept that behind the eyes and appearance of a 40-something-year-old man, that's what I am, is a two-year-old that was probably neglected. Behind the eyes and the appearance of a 40-year-old plus man, there is failed relationships. There is love, love lost. There is hate. There is growth and change and there is stagnation and staleness. These are all true about me and about you. Because the child in us, if we don't do the repair work 
for the child, then we carry that forward. And so if, and plus when we add to that, where there's always a child within us, right? And so I could even get hurt today that then I have to repair in 20 years from now or five years from now, or hopefully like 30 seconds from now, because the, the better we get at those repairs, um, those internal uh, psychological repairs, the better off um, we are in general in terms of uh, uh, our, our functionality in life. I want to take a second look at what does life mean from a clinical uh, viewpoint. I want to do this from a family systems theory. Family systems suggests that we are not just a representative of ourselves. We are part of a larger system. So if you are interested in this, um, or if it doesn't make sense, I strongly encourage you to look at Bowen's theory. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm using it as a bit of a framework. There's, there's a lot of angles I could have gone in terms of looking at theories, uh, but it's, it's pretty extensive and I think it's, it's a good one. So I'm going to paint a picture for you. Family systems suggest as a person, I have a mom and a dad. And I think about this, uh, for me personally, I, I like to look at it in terms of a genogram. A genogram is, is like a family tree. And in a family tree, you know, a child has parents. Okay, Those might be adopted parents. They might be biological parents. There might be separations and divorces. So there might be multiple parents. Um, there, there's all kinds of ways that that could look. But the family system is what you get when you get me. If I have siblings, that affects my family system. And so it goes. And then we add to this, it's dimensional, meaning, you know, there's our parents, your parents, my parents, but then we become parents and we have children. So now we're the parent, <laughs> we're still the child, and so it goes. And you end up with these uh, generations um, and generational patterns, and it, it gets really complex. One of the best ways that I heard it, I had a professor who, who put it this way. When I get into a relationship with you, that means in some form or another, whether your parents were good or not good, whether your siblings were good or not good, I am in a relationship with all of them because you are both an individual and a product of your family system. And that's a big deal because when I say, what does life mean? That takes it and makes it transcend time. So we now have, you know, even though I may have a hundred years, I hope a hundred years on this planet, <clears throat> my parents' time affected mine. So mine is overlapped with theirs and so on and so on generation after generation. Plus, it creates transgenerational patterns. Sometimes those are good. Sometimes those are not good. So as I look at it from a therapeutic lens of what does life mean, life is, is much bigger uh, than, um, for example, uh, the moment right now. The, the moment is a part of life. Life is much bigger than the moment. 
life is much bigger than uh, conception. It is much bigger than a fight that you got into. Life encompasses so much, both intrinsically inside and externally with like family systems work. You know, the idea of something bigger than ourselves. And that doesn't even take into account, and I'm not going to get into this, I'm just going to throw it out there. There is another piece of the puzzle, and that would be spirituality. Whether that's religion or just spiritual presence of some sort, spirituality is also an integral part. And we look at it for thousands of years, literally. There has always been a search by people to find a spiritual pathway of sorts. And I'm not going to take a look at that today because that's that's a, that's a different uh, a whole different conversation that I would I would want to, to to tangent on at a different time. So now so now that I'm done highlighting uh, what does life mean and give a, a paint that picture a little bit. I want to talk about what autonomy means. Autonomy it really boils down to this, the ability to choose for ourselves in every area of our life. That's really all it is, autonomy. Pretty simple concept, very difficult in practice, because we very quickly begin to see that when we look at transactional analysis, when we look at family systems theory, when, when we look at morality, there has to be limits to autonomy within a system. There has to be at times. I'm not saying that I like it because I don't. I, I hate the idea. and I'm not a hater. I, hate is a very strong, strong word. But I really, really hate the idea of taking another person's autonomy or having my own autonomy taken away. And how we define what autonomy is, is a big deal. I gave you two, I gave you a third, but I'm, you know, I haven't spent much time on it, but I give you two, the internal autonomy, which truthfully nobody can take from us. You know, we, you know we've, we've heard it probably um, said from, you know, POWs in war, they're in prison, um, they're being abused, uh, and and yet they find that internal autonomy spot, that place of, of power within, and they hold on to it, and rightfully so, because that's theirs. It doesn't belong to anybody else. All the external stuff they can take away, but they can't take away your spirit inside. So what happens with autonomy? We have two potential outcomes. Autonomy empowers us on an individual and a potentially a group level. But the other thing that happens is mistakes. If you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you'll know that mistakes are, are, are those growth areas, right? We make a mistake and we learn and we grow. And that can be very empowering too. But sometimes we don't grow and we continue to make those mistakes. And that's where we have to take a closer look at autonomy. 
which I'll get to a little bit more later. What happens when autonomy is taken? If somebody were to take it away from you or from me, we get denial and rejection, which comes back to our uh, our desire to be part of, um, our, our need to belong, even within our own system, right? If If I get rejected by the outside, I start to ask myself, am I the wrong person? Like, am I being somebody I should not be? Or is this them persecuting me? Right? We get that denial and that rejection. And then when it comes to mistakes, when, it, when we're talking about autonomy being taken, we can't necessarily know for sure in the moment sometimes whether taking autonomy away from somebody is right or wrong. There are times in that gray space, that, that tension spot, where we could potentially get it right or wrong. And I'm going to highlight that again in a little bit. Um, so just hold on to that little nugget and, and know that that's coming back. So what happens when a person chooses to give up autonomy? They choose to give it up. So that's a unique experience. So I, I, obviously, I can have autonomy. I can lose the autonomy. Somebody can take it away. What when, what happens when I give up my autonomy? That's an autonomy choice, right? Except there are situations where that is, even though it's done by choice, it's not done with the empowerment. It's done because they're not empowered. For example, codependence or dependence, the wrong type of dependence, right? There's a good dependence um, where we can lean on and trust, but then there's this dependence of, I can't do it without you. And those are tricky because that's that middle ground. It's, I have autonomy, but I'm freely giving it away. Well, we got to make sure we give it away to the right place, the right time, and in the right way. Because that can get dangerous in a big hurry. But it also can be one of the most empowering things to say, I trust fully. All right. So that's autonomy. That's what autonomy means. Now I want to highlight the tension. I know I've highlighted a couple of pieces, but what if life interferes with autonomy or vice versa? That's the tension I want to talk about. So now we're getting into the heart of this. Um, if life interferes with autonomy, which one do we choose? How do we know which one to choose? My hope is I'm going to help you understand this from a clinical view. This is, this is purely a clinical view. So hang in there with me. I'm going to take you down this path. And then of course, I love feedback. So give it to me. One place this intersects. And again, I'm going to reemphasize, it's not all about abortion. I promise you that. But that is one place in, place that this intersects, right? You literally have life and you literally have autonomy and you get that collision point. And a person who's trying to decide what to do with their autonomy may impact a life, 
But that's not the only place that you're going to see this tension. And I think we can learn from the other places as well. We see it in war. It may feel like autonomy to choose. But then we end up in positions where we don't really have a choice. Uh, crisis care and mental health, admitting somebody into the hospital kind of a thing. Right? That's a tension between autonomy and life. Right? Life as we know it. Prison, same thing. That tension between life and autonomy exists in a prison type setting. Right? And it's not because of freedom, although that is a piece of it. It's because it changes everything about their precepts, their, their, the way in which they, they can and will interact in the world. And that is, if you look at transactional analysis, going back to the beginning, and family systems theory, it reshapes all of it. So clinically, I got to tell you, like it, don't like it, but there is, <laughs> there is very clear guidelines when it comes to life and autonomy. Number one is life, and number two is autonomy. When that tension exists, life comes first. I'll give you another example of that. Uh, if... Someone is about, they, there's, there's a, um, uh, gosh, what is it? They, the Golden Gate Bridge. I believe that's which one it is. Um, the, the most suicides of any bridge on the, you know, in the U.S. or something like that. I don't have that data. I just, I heard that and held on to it. The, uh, if a person's going to jump, their life at that moment is more important than their autonomy. They can be removed from the edge of the bridge physically if necessary. Because life becomes more important at that moment than autonomy. There's a reason behind this. In the clinical world, it really comes down to if they're dead, they have no mental health. So life has to be there in order to work through the mental health and mental health is about growth and progress in, in into the future so we always have to be looking in that general direction um this also uh you know may come up with people who are near the end of their life and they want to die in a certain way and there's certain things that are allowable and certain things that are not so you, you see this a lot, and that tension is real. That tension is super real. So the next question I came up with was, how and when do we apply a justified removal of autonomy? Going back on the, the 9th of June, uh, 2022, I did a, a podcast that I put out. And so those of you who have listened to me for a long time now, you're going to go, oh, yeah, no, I've heard this. But those of you who haven't, this is not going to be review, and hopefully it's helpful. So the question again, how and when can we justify removal of autonomy? It's very limited, first of all. you got to know that. 
we can't just do it willy nilly. I don't get to just come into your house and say, oh, I'm detaining you because I don't like the way you smell. No good. Not going to work. The first thing is they have to be a danger to themselves. The second thing is a danger to somebody else. Or the third, gravely disabled. That's really the criteria. So when you see that tension between autonomy and life, what you end up with is these three criteria dictating the only times that we can interfere. There are checks and balances. I'm going to go over those real quick. If you want more detail on those those three pieces, I, I went over it more in that other podcast. Go back and listen to it or listen to it again if you haven't, if you've already listened to it. Number one with checks and balances is it's a trained professional. It's somebody who has been down this path and experienced this with collaboration of other professionals. Because that's number two, consultation, consultation, consultation. That's what professionals do. They consult. Whenever there's a, a gray area, the spots that, that are not very clear, we consult, consult, consult. We ask for feedback. Am I doing the right thing? Is this the next step? No, have you thought of this? Have you done that? Like, what are the other options in thinking outside of the box before we take away autonomy? There is a 72-hour review, I believe it's 72-hour review, by a judge, which means not only a professional has to be part of it, a medical professional, a mental health professional, and so on, but a judge then comes in and checks the work because that overlaps then into the legal world. Because if we take somebody's autonomy away without good cause, reasonable good cause, then we're susceptible. So we're going to play it extra safe. And oftentimes, um, we're going we're gonna to err on the side of, no, they should have their autonomy. But then we have these other things in place. When you go down and you look at the laws, a right to a public trial if wrongly or rightly accused of a crime, whether right or wrong, you get the right to a trial. A right to a lawyer, a jury, you know, you get to know who's accusing you of not being fit to have your own autonomy. And you get to know the nature of the charge or the evidence behind why this is, which means you get to know your own file. Now, that's not super complicated in the mental health world, but it can become complicated in the legal world. I get that. I'm not a lawyer, though. So you'd have to have to go to a lawyer's podcast or whatever to get that information. But I know those steps are all in there and those are the checks and balances so that somebody like me doesn't just say, oh my gosh, you're, you're a very sick person and you need to go to the hospital and you need to be admitted and don't let them out. I can't do that. There's checks and balances. And if I do that, I'm going to get in trouble and rightfully so. So what does all of this mean? We have an imperfect system. That's what it means. It's a careful system, but it's imperfect. We can't catch every danger. And at times, we're going to get in a situation where we wrongly take autonomy away. It can happen 
because it's a flawed system. It's not perfect. Is it the best system I've ever seen? Yes. Is it the best system I've ever read about? Yes. It is. But there can be mistakes. I'll highlight one for you. Britney Spears had the, uh, uh, what is it, the Save Britney or Free Britney because she had her autonomy taken away wrongly. She was an adult. She should never have been in that position. But I've still never seen a better system than what we have right now. Another thing you need to know about what this all means priorities are clear life first autonomy second if a life is in danger that's the priority then the autonomy so i'm going to go to those four things that i highlighted i highlighted uh, abortion war a crisis a mental health crisis prison and i want to just piece this out for you before i let you go With abortion, it's pretty clear. They have autonomy to make their own decision unless a life is in danger. Either the the mother or the baby. And that is where that tension exists. But it's very clear in the mental health world where we have to align, um, whether we like it or not. Because remember, going all the way back to transactional analysis, what does life mean? Going all the way back, like I can't look at my best friend and not see him as a kid. I loved him then, I love him now. Totally different appearance. But I still see him. He was still a life there. He's still a life now. I can't unsee that. So as a therapist, I don't have a choice. Life first, autonomy second. War. Autonomy, unless life is in danger. You know, that that is a big one because what we're looking at there is expanding the view. It's no longer about just an individual. It's about a group of people. So you would see things like... um, you know, for, from a clinical view, we, sh- you know, in in theory at least, we should not be beget- be getting, uh, we should not be getting behind war, unless there is some exceptional reason, infanticide, ethnic cleansing, mass shootings, um, acts of violence. We shouldn't get involved in war. I'm talking about things like 9/11 or. Um, you know, people walking into squares with bombs on them and stuff like that. Crisis mental health. They should have autonomy unless life is in danger. The way that that plays out in the mental health world is we talk about this all the time from clinician to clinician. The lowest level of care to make progress towards safety. That's it. The lowest level of care. If the lowest level of care, and I'll give you some levels of care, just for examples, outpatient therapy in an office with, you know, a private practitioner or, uh, 
something like that, that would be the lowest level of care. They're still living in their home environment. They're still going to their normal routines and stuff like that. You know, medication. Medication is, is actually more invasive than outpatient mental health care. It's more invasive because it changes the biology, right? It's a chemical being put in the body. So as a mental health professional, I would suggest mental health care with a, with a clinician is less of an invasive uh, system of care. And medication then would lead to like partial inpatient. That would mean they might get admitted shortly and then taken out. Um, it could lead to things like residential care, ultimately long-term hospitalization, uh, stuff like that. So we want to do the lowest level of care possible to make progress towards safety. And the way that that could apply also, just so you know, in mental health, we have programs all over the country, and they're probably not as good as they should be, but they're, they're there, they're available. That would be somebody who cannot... Uh, you know, maybe they're never going to be able to uh, manage their finances, but they can hold a job. So we would insert somebody to help them manage finances so that they could live independently on their own. That would be the lowest level of care to move them towards safety. You know, some people can't hygiene on their own. They can't wash themselves, shower. Those people they, that, that struggle with that they might get an in-home caretaker for a little while or something like that. The lowest level of care to get back to safety. The prison situation. This is a tough one. So uh, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of wishing I had done it in a different order. Maybe done this one first, but that's okay. Autonomy, unless proven to be a danger. So how does that work with somebody who's an inmate? They don't really have autonomy. The reason behind that is they have a pattern of showing they are unsafe to themselves or to somebody else. For example, uh, they got DUIs four times, danger to themselves or somebody else or both. Uh, it could be they were a violent offender one time. How are these determined? This is where I'm going to turn it back on you guys. You, the listener. Since I'm not the expert on this, but I have some you know, pretty good uh, background anyway, here's where it goes. Ultimately, it comes to what we set as social and cultural norms. If it is not acceptable to drive 70 miles an hour through a school zone, we establish a law that says, if you do that, you lose your license and you go to jail. Okay, let's say we did that. We, we have that, somebody goes to jail, they lose their autonomy. It's because we as a society have determined that that friction point between life and autonomy rubs right there. And we do that through our votes. When we vote at polls, uh, you know, when we take surveys, that's how we establish those in the legal sense. But in the social sense, it's going to be different. 
because social power is not necessarily the same as legal power. Socially, like you've, you've probably heard me talk about this, you know, cultural influence is a big deal. If we see something that seems like an injustice, that doesn't seem right, it seems too dangerous, we have the ability to wield our social power, our cultural influence, and say, time out. A great example of the cultural influence, um, and, I, and I think he did a, a good job overall, um, Matthew McConaughey, when he talked about that Uvalde uh, shooting, he used cultural influence. He doesn't have political power, uh, at least not at this point. But what he has is cultural influence. And there's a lot of overlap. But he used it really wisely and moved the needle, I think. I think he was helpful in aiding the process. He used the ability that he had with culture to say, hold on, people. Oh, we got we to gotta pause and we got to take a look. We can do better. With that said, I am, you know, I am out of notes because that is where we're going to end for today. I hope, my hope is that you are thinking about what this means, that you are processing um, whether this is right or wrong. This is a clinical perspective. And um, hopefully there's been something in here that's got you curious. And if it has, do me a favor. Let me know what part you're curious about. I'm happy to go over more details on things like transactional analysis or family systems theory or you know, wh- wh- where does the spiritual um, world enter the clinical world. I'm happy to do all of that. I'm also happy um, to just get you guys thinking. Remember, I believe you have the ability to think this stuff through. You don't need an echo chamber. I give you a perspective and you decide what to do with it. I make recommendations to clients. I don't make decisions for clients. They have autonomy unless there is a reasonable reason for me to believe that they can't handle it safely. And by safely, I mean like they're dangerous. All right. All right. Thank you so much for joining me and I will see you again soon.